It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. One and only Mr. Jeff Nyquist on Tuesday, January 9th. 2024 at 10:22 a.m. Eastern Time, and again telling people how come I'm using the iMac camera and not the good camera. Well, the iMac camera, or sorry, the good camera, has to stay somewhat colder and or overheats, which is I guess that's the trade-off of having like a 4K camera is that it does overheat. But uh, so because of that, I have to have the air conditioner on. And normally I don't mind, but it is January and it is, I think, 24 degrees outside and I'm not turning on the fucking air conditioner. So, you know what, guys, we're getting we're getting the uncropped, the un the unbeautiful view. And as I can now proudly shill, we have a sponsor, Fox and Sons Coffee, as well as what we're talking about today. World War Three. I also have another sponsor. You'd like you'd like how this fits in. Heaven's Harvest, which is prepper food, 25 year shelf life. Both those Fox and Sons and Heaven's Harvest. Go into the description, get the links, use promo code Tommy. You can get all sorts of prepper food for the inevitable World War III and thermonuclear holocaust and all that cheery stuff. And uh, right now, if you guys can't tell, just like it's a lot like early on in the podcast where I kind of had no idea what I was doing. I haven't quite figured out how to shill the sponsors at the beginning of the show while the guest politely just stares at me and smiles. I don't know. I haven't quite figured out how to do that with a delicate touch, and I'll figure it out when I do. But you know, whatever. I I don't know why I'm apologizing. But tell me that. about the, yeah. what is that coffee again? Fox and Sons coffee. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a coffee. Have you? It's a, what does it say on the package? Show me the electric, package. Electric Boogaloo. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a guy. It's it's a guy that dark roast. Yeah. Is it all dark roast? Do they got different flavors? Uh, they got different flavors. It's all in the description. Yeah. No, it's a guy and his two sons, and they do, and he. It's just them. He's a, he's a cool yeah. dude, and um, and the and the the food uh, the food people. Twenty five years. I mean, Heaven's that's Harvest. Yeah, I talked to. He's actually going to come on the podcast next week. Heaven's 25 Harvest. Twenty five years. Heaven's. Wow. Twenty five years. Shelf life. That is, that that is intriguing to me, and that's a pretty big. What's in that bucket? That particular one. So this one, this one is. So these ones actually, when I just grabbed these are seeds. So not only that, you can actually have seeds, so you can plant plant stuff after. So here's one. This one is um they have like they have some are like snacks. This one is uh 
like bana- like freeze dried banana chips. We've got apple chips. We've got strawberries, and then in this giant bucket, this big boy. This is the this is the good stuff. This is the good stuff. We got mac and cheese, baked really? potato casserole, chili mac and cheese, cheddar broccoli soup, cheesy lasagna, teriyaki rice. Yeah, and you don't have to freeze it. It's freeze freeze dried. Twenty five year shelf life. You and, just add water. Yeah. You can eat it, man. No kidding. And there's 72 entrees. 72. On that? And for everybody at for everybody watching, I did not tell Jeff to ask all these questions. He's being very polite. He he. Uh, no, I'm I'm interested. I look, I like I love coffee, yeah. and I love this idea of storing food. And this sounds. In, yeah. This is yeah, no, <laughs> it's really it's, interesting. Yeah, actually. no, he's he's gonna come on the show next week. Actually, yeah. he's a cool guy, and uh, G- given what we're gonna talk about, yeah, um, yeah, no, seriously. And they sent me a bunch of it, and I was like, you know what? I actually kind of don't mind having it in my apartment. And I'm like, I'm, it's only me, but I'm like, I can, all right, I can survive a little bit off this. Well, I'm like, all right, cool. I, I got an artesian road uh, well just a, a couple miles away, uh, artesian well, so I got water. So yeah. if it's free dry, freeze dried, all I have to do is add water, right? And have yeah. a campfire. Yeah. And, yeah. And I so, can mix that stuff up. Yeah. Right? So I'm, I'm, I'm actually, so I can actually say, I know a lot of people, I only use, I only get sponsored by stuff I use, but I mean, as someone who uh, does a vigorous workout and then two podcasts a day, I do use caffeine every day. So this coffee is dope. And uh, yeah, practice what I preach, man. You know, I interview all these special forces guys. I interview you. We're talking about kind of how it's going to hell in a handbasket. So I can actually say I, I can stand behind these and I have chatted with both the guys. This isn't some random like Probo code. I have chatted with them. They're cool dudes. They like the show. I'm going to have to try that coffee out. Yeah. Definitely. And to me, it's like, to me, that it, it already proves it when when they're they look at my show. I told them like, hey, I'm banned from YouTube, I'm banned from iTunes, I'm banned from Reddit, and I'm banned from Twitter. These are the reasons why. It's not because of mm. you know, it's not because of vulgarity or harassment. I'm like, it's talking about COVID, it's talking about you know elections, it's talking about this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, I am banned from these things, but I do stand. Well, by see, that's the thing is is that if you actually explore these issues mm-hmm. and you go into certain areas they're taboo they just ban you and yet on twitter you know i'm harassed by anti-semites for years yeah Yeah. and they don't ban them no they're just jew hating you know anti-semites and they don't ban they don't care so i don't understand and of course i don't believe in hating anybody or turning people against each other but um well maybe we should try to explain everything um in a way that makes sense well, let's get into it. So, you know, the, the, the very just the idea of World War Three. it's like, yeah, all right, that's definitely on everyone's mind. But you said, you know, when I, when I texted you, I was like, hey, what's our topic? You said the uh, the crisis of modernity with World yeah. War Three. Can you explain yeah. that part? Well, yeah. Um, if you look at, you know, look at my grandmother. She was born in 1897. Mm-hmm. She went to church in a horse and buggy, right? So horses and donkeys and camels and beasts of burden were what everybody used you know they measured in horsepower and uh it was real horses not just fictional horsepower literal horsepower and so that was it from you go back to ancient egypt and you know ancient rome and greece and you know this is all they had so basically we have for hundreds of years so that's just one illustration of course they were starting to they had telephones mm-hmm. by then they had 
electricity was being developed. They had gas in, in pipes to heat people's homes. They were starting to have indoor plumbing in cities. So um, modernity was, of course, well on its way by then. Of course, for people who were living in the countryside, who still had outhouses and went to went to church in a horse and buggy in the 1890s, it was, you know, they, they rode on trains. I'm sure my grandmother did. Trains were new. People thought, oh, my gosh, if you get in a train, you're going too fast. Yeah, yeah. There's something oh, yeah. wrong about it. It's evil. Yeah. You know, you got to stop these trains. They're going too fast. People, there are a lot of people had the sense that these changes were too much too fast back then. You think about the changes just mm. in the last few decades, you know, with computers, with these, mm. these little smartphone things. And, and this has just happened in my lifetime. Computers, when I was born, when I was going to college, nobody had computers, you know. I mean, a computer was an IBM thing that some fancy business paid a million dollars for. Punch cards have, you and know? vacuum tubes. Punch and... cards. And then, well, they when I was in college, they were starting to have these, these very clunky, awful computers that they were using in businesses. But, you know, I, I learned on a typewriter. I had a manual typewriter, um, you know, electronic typewriter. That was the real. But, you know, just think of how things have come just in one lifetime. Mm. And in communications, the idea that you could see people on your phone or I could talk to you and see you and you could see me. That was like science fiction yeah. future. We heard that that was coming in the 60s when I was in grade school, that the, one day that would be happening. You know, Walter Cronkite did this thing on the 20th century. But really, modernity kind of begins. Generally, they dated around the time of Columbus, and the discovery of the new world. Really? Yeah, because around 1500, because that's when the voyages of discovery, that's when Galileo and all these people started to question the uh, the 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 idea Church that the universe dogma, revolved doctrine. around the earth. Right. And some of these older ideas, I mean, most people did know at the time of Columbus that the world was round, but there were still people who thought it was flat because the Bible said it was flat. I was corrected on a talk radio show not long ago who he said <clears throat> do you believe the flat earth no well then you're not a true christian because if you don't believe the flat earth it's in the bible you know you're not believing the, what the bible's saying so this was the the crisis of modernity begins with this questioning and this discovery where man instead of looking inward and being spiritual um starts looking outward and starts exploring the physical universe in inventing things, discovering how the physical universe works, which is kind of, you know, they had science, the ancient Greeks had it. And there's, there's a famous story in ancient Greece where somebody went to a Spartan general with an invention. It was like a, it was like a, like a machine gun for arrows. Right. Okay. I, I forget how it was described. It was a kind of a machine that just shot yeah. things. And he said, no, it destroys valor. We're not going to destroy the machine, you know, huh. Um, they had the ingenuity, they had science, but they wanted the science for they, you know, if you look at Aristotle, he said, knowledge is, 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 you know, true wisdom is not for these practical pursuits. These practical pursuits are vulgar. Uh -huh. You know, they're what, what mechanics do, you know, what tradesmen do. Sure. It's, 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 you know, we, we don't, we want it to be more spiritual, more elevated. Knowledge elevates the soul. It's all about the soul. And you, of course, you've got Plato and and uh, who's saying much the same thing. So they were they were focused on uh, political wisdom, on wisdom for life, on the on the meaning of things. What is real happiness for man? And um, so it was a different. And, and so 
change was very slow. In fact, they believed that, you know, and the ancients kind of thought, they talked about a golden age, you know, before the flood, before the, the some kind of cataclysm, you, you see the fragments in different ancient writers, and there's Plato's story of Atlantis. And they say, you know, this was a great age, but we've degenerated yeah. from our ancestors. So change is degenerative, right? Mm. Yeah, the same thing in the Indian ancient Indian traditions about the Kali Yuga. We're living in the yeah, Kali, Yuga, Kali Yuga, right? The Dark Age, right? So they were, I forget what the Yuga was that was the 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 age where everything was, was good. But it was like the Golden Age, same yeah. as the Greeks believed. The things were better once. And um, men were closer to the gods and so on. It was like the Garden of Eden. Mm. But we've degenerated and we're going to continue to degenerate. So you've got in the Indian, in an ancient Indian text describing the Kali Yuga, it sounds like us. It says they'll yes. have inventions and they'll they'll be all outwardly focused and the spirit will be forgotten. Yeah. So, but so modernity is this era basically where where people say, look, this is superstition. Uh, people don't need to live in in poverty and ignorance, and and we can discover how things actually work. We can make a better world. And, you know, and we can open up new lands in the West. And of course, people, you know, this civilization was still Christian. So the, so the process was um, with the inventing of the printing press, people were then becoming their own Pope, right? And saying, wait a minute, why should I follow the Rome? Yeah, why can't so I you talk had to the God Reformation, yeah. right? Yeah. So Martin after Luther. Columbus and the Voyages of Discovery got Mar Martin Luther, mm -hmm. you know, basically breaking with the church and the Reformation beginning. And then you had, uh, uh, of course, Calvin and Zwingli and all these other folks. And they were burning each other at the stake and they were fighting over what the Bible really meant or how to understand what was in it. Mm. And of course, after two centuries of religious wars, which included the Thirty Years' War in Germany, which was terrible devastation and destruction, you you had um, you had the Enlightenment in the 18th century, where people really basically got tired of this killing people, people killing each other over. I mean, I think France had several civil wars in the same you know between the Huguenots and the Catholics, and of course you had King Henry VIII converting uh, England, becoming the head of the Church of England and breaking with Rome so that he could marry, you know, uh, the lady of his choice. Um, uh, so um, you, you, you had these wars of religion. So when the founding fathers, when America had its break with England, which was a revolution, he had the glorious revolution in England, of course, uh, which threw the Stuarts out, who According to Macaulay, they were trying to reestablish Catholicism in England. You had, and, and of course, that's where we get the Orange Men and the Irish uh, Civil Wars and stuff. Um, so you 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 end up with 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 the founding fathers not wanting to have an instituted church here in America because they didn't want. If you have an official church, then you have something to war over. Mm. If everybody can just practice religion freely. There's no reason for anybody to go to war with anybody to capture the throne, so to speak, to be the enthroned religion. So this is sort of how things have evolved. And this is sort of the evolution in modernity. And by the time we get to the 19th century, things are changing so much and it's accelerating so much. You've got people, sociologists like Max Weber and others talking about this crisis of modernity, where 
uh, we are going from, you know, if you look at the Middle Ages, uh, you have, uh, you know, the patriarchy, you have patriarchal authority, patrimonial authority. You have authority passing from father to son, you know, through the male line, you have kings, you have barons, you have heads of household. Um, you know, you go back to ancient Rome and the father in the, in the Roman times had absolute power of life and death over his children. And, um, you know, so you had a lot of these societies, you know, they were all patriarchal and, and, and authority was, and what was meant, you know, it was Max Weber who said we have these different, he categorized the forms of authority, patriarchal, patrimonial, charismatic, right, and mm -hmm. bureaucratic, uh, rationalized authority. So what modernity is, is we're in this age of science and rationalism, we're making authority itself rational, which of course, well, why don't we vote? This is where egalitarianism, you're, you're, you're trying to reduce everything to numbers, and you're saying, well, the numbers should count, everybody should vote, we should do what the majority wants, and, you know, you got John Stuart Mill, the greatest happiness for the greatest number and mm -hmm. Bentham and all these other folks, you know, um, thinking of a, in terms of with all the science, we can have a kind of democratic egalitarian utopia where people are equal because if they're equal, they won't fight, you know, and if they don't believe too hard in any one religion, they won't fight over that. And they can vote, they can decide instead of fighting to decide things, they can vote to decide things. So you had all these ideas. Uh, coming in and and you had bureaucracy because society because we had discovered sanitation and all these things all of a sudden the population exploded mm -hmm. in the 19th century so suddenly where you had only you know i think at the time of the glorious revolution there were only three million people in england and london was the biggest city in europe with a population of a million right so just just think about it i mean how many tens of millions more you've added on Public in health, the last yeah, 300 done, years, right? Done more for population growth than anything. Right. And then you get the American Revolution, the French Revolution, a lot of, uh, you know, liberal economic ideas where, you know, you're dereg, you know, it used to be the king would license people. Okay. You get to be a businessman. You get to trade here. You get to hunt the king's forest or fish the king's fish, so to speak. But now they're, they're freeing everything, resources up. And you just got this tremendous productivity that is able to take care of these greater numbers of people. So the crisis of modernity though, is uh, one of the, the aspects of it is when Nietzsche famously wrote his parable of the madman. And he said, parable of the madman is a, is a takeoff on Diogenes the cynic. Diogenes the cynic was famous in ancient Greece. He was kind of a hobo, uh, you know, a wise man, hobo philosopher. He didn't believe in, in, actually having a home or making money because that would compromise him versus the truth. Virtuous hobo. Right. Yeah. It's like, if I work for you, then if you say I have to think a certain way, then you're I'm no longer me. true to myself. Okay. Right. So anyway, he would be walking around with the lit lamp at, at, in broad daylight. They're going, Diogenes, you nut, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm looking for a wise man. <laughs> you know, I'm looking for a wise man um, or I'm looking for a good man or whatever, like, looking like, for a wise I man. Like that. Uh, and, and so the, the, um, the, the Nietzsche's parable of the madman is it's a Diogenes like figure with this lamp and he comes into the marketplace and he throws down his lamp and breaks it. And he screams, God is dead. And this crowd forms and he goes, you have killed him. 
And they're looking at him and going, what's he talking about? He's nuts. And he goes, uh-oh, you don't even know what I'm talking about. You don't even know what you've done, is what he says. You don't even know what you've done. You have wiped away the horizon. You have erased your own world because everything you've done has been based on the idea of God. And you only think you still believe in him, but you've killed him. You know, this is a, this is a, this is very metaphorical. It's a parable. Um, and, and he says, this is, this event, the death of God is like uh, the death of a star that's many light years away. Okay. And that this star has died, but you're still seeing the light. You still think it's there, but it's actually died already. But it's going to take a while for it to register. So it's going to take for a while for the light to stop reaching you. I, I get, I get that. Can, can you explain what he meant yeah. when he said, you know, you don't know what you've done. You, you've erased the horizon. I don't, I don't understand that. Yeah, they don't know that they've killed God. They don't know that their their course of living, the way they live, and their choice for science and this rational bureaucracy and attempting to make sort of political utopia, make a better political world, trying to see that man was starting to use politics, you know, socialism especially, and democratism and egalitarianism, man was starting to uh, be his own god. Man was starting to say, oh, we can create heaven on earth, right? We can bring about the millennial reign ourselves through utopian politics and theorizing. Just like we've discovered all these things with science, we can use science to perfect government and to perfect human life, and then we will have a kind of heaven on earth, right? Yeah. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I mean, that's, I remember I saw a communist broadcasting he had a this was uh, 10 years ago i was at the gym and they had all these communist stations on the set already set on the uh the treadmills you know and i just turned it on and there he was and, it, and the guy he had a, this communist it was it was a he had this banner behind him um uh bringing heaven on earth and that was the banner behind him and of course if you really study marxism it's really a millenarian kind of belief that there's going to be this revolution, which is like the apocalypse, right? It's a terrible, bloody. Marx said there could be 50 years of civil wars and, and massive slaughter. And Engels said, you know, whole classes and races of people will be eliminated and annihilated. And then will come the. And then we'll be in know, heaven. Yeah. It's, yeah. Well, how does this not kind of rhyme with, you know, uh, the, the apocalypse of St. John? Yeah. It it really, it really, yeah, it really does. Don't, don't believe in, right. don't believe in God, but we're God. Don't believe in heaven, but we're going to create heaven. 
the rapture of the yeah, apocalypse we're gonna revelation do it ourselves. isn't real, but we'll yeah. do it with tanks. It really right. is. Man, it's right. poetic. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so this is the, the, and of course, Carl Jung, in looking at this, he wrote a book called Aeon, um, which was he, in the last 10 years of his life, he started having visions of a future nuclear war. And this is as we're, how you get to nuclear war is mm. with this inverted kind of faith. Um, and, and Jung, it was after his wife's death that he started having these, these horrific visions. And it was in his, in his last years, I think Jung died in 62 or 61. But um, he wrote this book in the 50s called Aeon, A Phen Phenomenology of Self. And I've read it, you know, multiple times because it's so difficult to understand. But he has this, he says, Antichrist is not just a myth. There's a reality here. And he said, he gave a definition for Antichrist, which is very useful. He said, Antichrist is somebody that promises the same thing as Christ. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So we just said Marx and the communists, they're promising the same thing as Christ because, you know, Christ returns and there's the millennial reign, the thousand years of peace. You know, but by the way, where did that you, Adolf Hitler said thousand year right. Right. So all these political movements are piggybacking on this idea of, you know, a Messiah, whether it's Lenin or Hitler or whoever, and a millennial reign. So what they, what what Jung said is Antichrist, they promise the same thing as Christ, that the lion will lie down with the lamb and there will be peace on earth and plenty and so on, and there'll be no, no more death. But they deliver the exact opposite. So the promise of Antichrist is the same as Christ, but what is delivered is not peace on earth, but horrible war, not plenty, but poverty, not, well, it kind of, you know, and, and not freedom, but oppression. Well, it kind of sounds like communism and Nazism and all these mm -hmm. modern movements that came out of the crisis of modernity. Mm. So it isn't when Nietzsche was losing his mind and he wrote Ecce Homo, there's a part in there where, you know, he writes these chapters like why I am, um, why I write such good books and why I am so wise. But he has this part where he talks about this the coming of earth, you know, my message will, you know, presage the coming of earthquakes and the, you know, the breaking up of nations and so on. And he has his own apocalyptic thing where he says there'll be that religion will become politics and everything will devolve into a war of, you know, political ideologies. And here he wrote this before World War One and World War Two, before the Cold War. You know, he wrote this in the 1880s, in the late 1880s. Um, so, so it is, sometimes it takes a, a, a madman, a, someone who's losing their mind to, to have the lucidity to actually say, oh my gosh, this is what's coming. And, and of course it is, it did come. Um, have you, have you read the crowd by Gustav Le, uh, Le Bon? Oh yeah. It's a fantastic book. I had no idea when that was written until I finished it. 1890s. Yeah. You talked about Hitler. Without, well, without Hitler, it being Hitler. Hitler and Lenin studied Laban's book. But it's so wild because I remember reading it and I was like, I was like, he's describing Hitler without saying Hitler. I'm like, okay, well, you know, it's not that. And then I looked at the published date and I was like, wait, hold on. Mm -hmm. He described like the madness of the of yeah. of all of it and just following them to the ends of the earth. And you're like, holy shit, this is before World War One. Yeah. Well, the German sociologist Max Weber, who died in 1920 in the great influenza. Uh, he 
wrote about charismatic authority mm. and speculated towards the end of his life is that the only thing that's going to, you know, here Germany, the German world suffered revolutions, both in the Austrian Empire was overthrown and the Kaiser fled to Holland. And you had these upheavals, the Weimar Republic was formed. And, 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 and Weber said, maybe there's going to be a charismatic leader, maybe the charismatic authority, because in, in his schema, you kind of establish a new dispensation through a charismatic leader. And of course, charisma doesn't mean the kind of loose way we use it now. We, we think of somebody who's, who comes off well on TV, right? Yeah. Who's attractive and is kind of in, interesting to watch and holds your attention. Mm. But what he meant by the real meaning of charisma, it's a, it, it goes back to uh, Christian religious terminology. Charisma means the gift of grace. There is a grace about this person, a grace from God. There is there is something of God about them so that God is, it's almost like God has anointed them or given them a mission and they're fulfilling it. The, the way a lot of people feel about Trump, for example, the way a lot of people felt about uh, Hitler. Um, mm. And and the thing is, is that you can have, uh, you can have charismatic leaders who do positive things and, and negative things. And it, and it almost seems like when you go through the sociological literature, when you go through, you know, Nietzsche was was a bit all over the map. He was he was very much affected by this, uh, what was happening, and so he was almost like a a bellwether. He was a guy who was very sensitive. He actually had an artistic temperament. He was registering this, and he was he was really a poet, uh, even more than he was a philosopher. And so he was basically just kind of channeling this angst. And this this destruction and that and he really in many places he bemoaned the destruction of Christianity. Uh, there was a sense in which and and also he as he raged against it. But what he really hated was he seemed to have respect for Christ, but he hated the Christians. <laughs> mm. He thought they were false, and he thought they were becoming socialists. He thought when the socialists were the people he hated the most. He thought they were the new religion that was coming, and they would they were the ultimate destroyers. And of course, he he wrote about the tarantulas in um, in his uh, uh, in, in his thus spake Zarathustra, and the tarantulas were full of envy, and they were biting tarantulas, and they were they were they were he he described them it's it's like the college professors right and the and the politicians the socialist politicians that are feeding en envy and feeding all this division this divide and conquer game. That is bring you know sort of degenerating our politics, making even the functioning of a republic, you know, um, pathological. Um, so so again, all of this is the phenomenon, the crisis of modernity, along with the world wars, along with the revolutions, along with the advent of Bolshevism, you know, and what what came out of World War II in the end was that National Socialism was was unsuccessful and was destroyed. And you ended up with Western liberalism and Eastern communism, Marxism, Leninism, as the two leading contenders, right, for control of the planet. And they had developed each side vast numbers of thermonuclear weapons pointed at each other apocalyptically. And this is like, what, what are they going to, are they going to push this button? What are they going to do? How is this going to be resolved? And so there we have, this is, sets the stage. The crisis of modernity sets the stage. 
Um, and, and just to add one more, you know, it was Henry Adams had the analogy of modernity. He was, you know, he wrote the education of Henry Adams in 1905. And his whole idea was, was the way he saw it is, this is, the, you know, he said Western civilization began around the 10th century. It was this emergent Christian, magnificent church and these magnificent cathedrals, and this tremendous passion and belief and spirituality that everything, all this art and beauty was built on the spirituality and all the knowledge of the colleges and the churchmen, and they had such a deep philosophy. And, and it's, and now it turned into, you know, the, the industrialists and the, uh, the robber barons of the, the late 19th century and Darwin popping up with evolution, which, you know, basically, um, uh, Henry Adams said, you know, I was kind of into that for a while, but then I realized it wasn't true. You know, it didn't, it, you know, cause he was, went out digging for fossils. He even yeah. went on these expeditions. He said, wait a minute, all these fossils aren't evolving. They're just extinctions, mass extinctions. And then there's new animals and some of the old ones left over. It's like they, they you know, he was very smart. And he said, modernity is like a runaway train that's going faster and faster down the track. And there's only two ways it can end. It, 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 it jumps the track and crashes, or it reaches the end of the line and smashes up, right? Because nobody knows where it's going. Nobody's minding the store. Nobody's, no, they, <laughs> they just want to go fat. You know, we just you want to go economics. faster just to we go We just faster. want more growth. We want more growth. We want more money. We don't know why. So when you're we at the bar with your friends with in college, you're like, let's get another right. shot and another shot. And you're... It, it takes you five years of partying before you realize you're like, hey, there's no end to this. This ends with us vomiting and fighting. But it's but you're like, but you're like, let's just get another shot, dude. Another round, another pitcher. And it's 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 the funnest thing when you're in it. But yeah, no, it ends with it ends with you getting thrown out of the bar or you staying at the bar until it's over. And both of those end with a hangover. Pretty bad. Well, see, that yeah. was kind of that's another analogy for it is that we're we're binging <laughs> yeah. on all this materialism, and we've you know we are our spirituality. The idea, the ancient idea. You go back to Plato and and even earlier, and this is true in Indian civilization and Chinese civilization to the extent that that they actually you know Confucius. The influence of Confucius was serious. Is the idea that there was a spiritual wisdom? Sure which should be a you know advi you know in charge uh, a connection you know they had in in china they had uh, the mandate of heaven so like we're ruling because god has given us the grace and the wisdom to rule uh and and if we don't have that we don't have a right to rule hmm. and so and that was true in catholic middle ages it was true in ancient egypt true in Babylon, you know, with Marduk, they, you know, it was uh, true in, in ancient Israel, true everywhere, right? It was true. And, and so the, 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 and there's a few exceptions in history where you have these hiccups, but generally modernity is the super hiccup where people say, oh, no, it shouldn't be the wise who rule or the mandate of heaven. It should be the majority, the masses, the ignorant masses, the uneducated. So now you have the inversion of the order. Remember the, the old Platonic order, the, the wise ones closest to God with spiritual wisdom are at the top, the philosopher kings, then the guardians underneath them, then the merchants, then the workers and the peasants underneath that. Well, now we've inverted it. 
The rulers are the people that used to be at the bottom, right? And so they're in charge of everything. So you have the inversion. And um, I'm not a big fan of Julius Evola, but he very ingeniously, uh, who is, he was a, a kind of a, a neo, a kind of a fascist. He supported Mussolini and Hitler in World War II, but then uh, he really never joined the fascist party. He didn't believe in what they were doing. He just thought that it was a better alternative than liberalism and uh, communism. So uh, Evola had this thing where he talked about this inversion of the orders. And he said, if you go through the ages of history, each one is, a, is close, gets closer to the bottom. It's kind of, yeah. and it turns out to be historically true. He, he said, for example, in the ancient world, you did have the kings were like the king, ancient kings of Egypt, the pharaohs, they were, you know, uh, the, the highest of the high yeah. priests, ultimately, same thing in Babylon. So you had the ruler, the, the uh, priest kings, and which were the philosopher kings. And then they kind of faded away and you ended up with the warrior class. You get, by the time you get to um, the Roman Senate, there's a bunch of warriors uh, are the patricians who are generals who are basically leading the Romans to conquer the world. And in the medieval world, it's the same thing. It's the aristocrats who are a warrior aristocracy. That's the aristocracy. All these guys were barons. They were barons and a baron is like a military title. You know, a duke is a military. It's how many men you can muster and, uh, and and so, of course, the king is sort of the baron of barons. Um, so it was all about war and it was all about this warrior class being on top. And then all of a sudden capitalism comes along and who's on top? Now, the money people. Everything's the money people and the warriors are just bureaucrats serving the state. But the state is elections and elections are decided plutocratically by the money of the wealthy people backing the different candidates. Right. So then you got plutocracy, but then you've got, when you got communism, the proletariat or socialism, the proletariat becomes ultimately powerful. You get the dictatorship, the proletariat, or the state of the whole people as they transformed it under Brezhnev. And you, you then you do everything for the people and the people are really the rulers in principle, you know, uh, democratic centralism or, you know, pure, pure democracy or, you know, what they want to have in, in the West now is a, kind of a pure liberal democracy. Um, and so, of course, then the people are ruling. So we've gone through all of these stages. And of course, this is actually this, how the Kali Yuga is destroyed, described by the ancient Indians, uh -huh. you know, an inversion of the order. Um, and so th that's, that's all very interesting. So you get this apocalyptic um, worries about what's so again, setting the stage for World War III. So what, if you get down to practical politics, what is this Cold War standoff that was going on when I was born in 1958? What, what is going on? You've got the Soviet Union, you've got communist China, you've got Eastern Europe. Uh, in 1959, you get Cuba in December 1959 added to the communist bloc. So you got the first communist country in the Western Hemisphere. Um, you've got you know North Korea and North Vietnam. So you've got this communist bloc thing. And of course, what do we do? You know, they got nuclear weapons. We've got nuclear weapons. Um, and it was like mutual assured destruction and containment. Hmm. You know, we don't want to start a nuclear war that will put an end to this wonderful modern world. We'll just wait for them to 
basically democratize or rediscover capitalism and realize their way is wrong. You got Nixon going to Moscow and having his kitchen debate with Khrushchev. Mm -hmm. I think that was in 59 or 60. So they were in Moscow. They had this American display where they showed a modern American kitchen with the refrigerator and the dishwasher and the, all the wonderful, you know, the electric can opener, all the things they had there, maybe the TV. And they showed all these things and, and Khrushchev, you know, arguing with him that this is not, doesn't mean you're superior to us, mm. this kitchen display. Um, and, um, and of course, Eisenhower under John Foster Dulles saying, you know, rejecting the Gaither report, which said we, we have to build bomb shelters. We can't build all, we need to divert the nation's concrete to building fallout yeah. shelters. We got to store food. We've got to get ready for World War III. And, and Dwight David Eisenhower saying, uh, no, uh, we're going to win uh, the contest by living better than the Russian people, than the people in the communist world. Now, of course, if you know history, nobody ever won a conflict by living better than their enemy. Yeah. Quite the opposite. You and know? Dwight, he also said, <laughs> he also said, uh, was it there's not enough bulldozers to uh, clean up the bodies after a, a thermonuclear war? This, well, it uh, turns out you don't have to. <laughs> well, that's another <laughs> good thing is they get vaporized. But yeah. no, he said, was um, civil? Well, I mean, there'll, the, there'll be a lot of bodies, but I mean, the people will just be buried in the dust and the rubble, and you're just going to, you're not going to go near the place. I, th um, I think he too said, much, he said yeah. something along the lines in private that the, like, what is it, civil defense, he said that's, he said it's a, it's a gesture to make the public feel better. Well, um, yeah, uh, Eisenhower was against all this stuff. And Kennedy, when he ran in 1960, said, look, we need civil defense. And Eisenhower is wrong and he's soft on communism. I mean, believe it or not, John F. Kennedy was the guy who came in and said that. Um, so and that's if you go back to the 1960, anybody can probably find on YouTube uh, Kennedy's speech at the 1960 Democratic Convention in Los Angeles. And that is the mo one of the most fiery Cold War speeches you could probably ever hear. You're watching this and you're going, the Kennedy? that's yeah. John F. Kennedy? Yeah. You know, it's like, wow, he was the anti-communist, anti-communist. Um, but also a liberalizer, a liberal, um, one that was thought the welfare state was an important thing in there. But of course, as they understood the welfare state, then they had, didn't have the great society yet. Mm -hmm. um, Johnson hadn't come in yet. Um, but, uh, and, you know, th there's the questions of racial harmony and, you know, the, all the political divisions that can divide people can lead to wars. Mm -hmm. And when you have nuclear weapons, just the biggest divide then was this. And of course, so how did the communists view Eisenhower? They were watching Eisenhower do this. They watched Eisenhower say, beware the military industrial complex. They watched Eisenhower say, we're going to win. Uh, they knew Eisenhower wanted to win by living better. They were, they, they didn't miss the kitchen debate. Khrushchev was right there. They were formulating their strategy at the same time. It is Ryan here. And I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And they said, you know, they these Americans expect us to want their system so that we can live better than them. They're expecting communism to liberalize. So why don't we do a fake liberalization? Yeah. Make them think we have liberalized and then just wipe them out when they've disarmed themselves. I do that I do that all the time in the in the comments of my podcast is I don't argue with people. I go I always say I go, "Oh, that is a good point." And it just end the conversation. They're going, "We'll live better." Right. And they're going, Oh, you're right, Dwight. Yeah, we'll do it too. You're kind of yeah, so keep doing Khrushchev, it anyway. So, yeah, so Khrushchev came up, you know, Stalin had died and Stalin, at the end of his life, there's a lot of stories that he wanted to end with a bang. He wanted to do World War III. And there's a version, you know, his his last bodyguards uh, that were alive in the 90s um, started testifying that um, the night Stalin died, Khrushchev had removed them from guarding him so the night that stalin had his stroke his bodyguards had been removed that night so there's uh, there's this there's great suspicion about foul play i didn't didn't know that yeah a number of uh a number of biographers of uh, a a few of the smarter biographers of stalin even before these guys came out with their testimony were speculating this about stalin uh saying wait a minute um there's they there must have been a plot that Beria and Khrushchev got together and overthrew Stalin because they didn't want to fight World War III. Because what was happening then was that when Eisenhower first came in, he was going to, if they didn't make peace in Korea, he was just going to go straight into World War III, wipe out China and Russia. And um, they knew this because they had spies all over Washington. And they said, uh-oh, better go make peace. And Stalin said, no, let him, let him start World War III. It's perfect. We can we can fight and win this. We'll win and, st- and they thought the old man is addled. We'll be wiped out. We'll lose. <laughs> we can't beat the Americans. They were smart enough. The younger technocrats, the under Stalin, it was like this is insane. We couldn't beat the Nazis without the Americans. How are we going to beat the Americans? You know, we're never going to do it. So um, On, they Jeff, they had real, to retreat. Real, you know, real quick. You know the drill. I got to use the restroom real quick. Tell them where to find the yeah, books. I'll be- yeah. Um, so anyway, I should, do I have one of my books here? The origins of the fourth world war was my, you know, this is an early copy of it, but that's, that was the first edition, but, um, um, the fool and his enemy at amazon.com would be good to uh, start out with. And of course, um, the lies we believe in is, is the last book I did. And of course, um, uh, I could, uh, I, I've got a bunch of origins of the fourth world war 
here right now, but I'm not uh, I'm not really keen on parting with them because I think I'm done to my last 150 books. But um, if people write to me uh, at jarenyquist at aol.com, uh, maybe I'll see the email. I'm getting so much junk email. I, I don't get every email, but if I see it, um, you know, you can also go to um, my, my um, uh, jarenyquist at aol.com. I, I have a... Um, um a paypal at that where if you make if you make an order on paypal for origins of the fourth world war it's 25 dollars that includes the postage and handling and i can mail the book to you because I, I i get a few orders for it and it kind of explains the whole world war three setup thing and the book was actually written between 1987 and 91 and then it was published first in in 98 and the second edition came out in 99 i've second edition books left to go but um uh yeah you you can kind of see that how it works and of course my work over the years has been to try to understand this what's been happening uh you know between these great powers and how this strategy between them has unfolded and how this crisis of modernity plays into it so so anyway, so the 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 what happened with with Khrushchev, you know, in 1956 he denounced Stalin, um, and they um, they said, look, Stalin had these errors, and we want to do things right. So a number of one of the main things that came of that is that Stalin, how Stalin kept made the communist system work, is he used he used arrest and execution and imprisonment very harsh measures. So if you're the manager of a steel mill or, or you're running a tank factory, you could be arrested and, and shot or put in a gulag at any moment mm -hmm. if Stalin was unhappy with you. you know so so you could th this this is how these things worked and and of course this actually was what pushed the system forward. Now of course, since they didn't have a fully rationalized economy, with a real market, the market was constantly. It was the. It was the, what they did is they limited consumption, and the uh, main consumer was the government, was the state, which was mostly wanting to consume, you know, uh, some uh, light industry, some consumer goods, but mainly military goods. All the best materials went into the, into making weapons, and the all the inferior materials and the inferior work part of the workforce was making the consumer goods, right? So people. People had shoddy goods, um, inadequate choices in food and stuff at the markets. They'd have to queue in line for bread and so on. Uh, but the military was just spitting out tanks and weapons and everything right and left. So that was that was the Soviet system. Well, Khrushchev did something which ultimately caused the system. And in, in the one thing that made it work fail, he said, "We're not, you know, Stalin was wrong to murder his associates." We're not going to, we're going to have collective leadership. We're not going to have a cult of personality. We're not going to murder each other anymore. We're not going to have a system where we all purge each other. And all the leading communists, all, all the apparatchiks who just breathed this sigh of relief and said, thank God, we're not going to be killed for screwing up anymore. You know, and of course it didn't have to be that they screwed up. It's somebody could blame you for screwing up. It could be very arbitrary because everybody would go to Stalin and they would lie to him. You know, and Stalin had to figure out who was telling them the truth and who was lying. 
And if he found out you were lying, you were the next to get the chop, you know. And so, and of course, there was, it was this government by all these people, you know, conspiring against each other. But Khrushchev was the ultimate guy that ended up on top at that point. And of course, the Soviet government was, was governed by what they call the Iron Triangle. It was the party, the army, and the KGB. Mm-hmm. All men with guns pointed at each other's heads, right? Yeah. This was their, their form of checks and balances. The circu- I think you said it before. Yeah, the circular, yeah. The circular yeah. gun to the head. The, the, yeah, the, the Iron Triangle. So, uh, so this system, they, in um, 1957... They had a committee meeting, a committee after the denunciation of Stalin, uh, they had a committee under Brezhnev, which was tasked with creating the new strategy. Uh, because they had, they, the hydrogen bomb had come, and of course, Sputnik had come, you know, the first satellite, which was really the first ICBM. Because if you could put a satellite in orbit, you could put a warhead on that satellite, and it could be an ICBM that could come and hit. Yeah. So... So this is this is basically what you have is you have they have to figure out well how do we adjust our revolutionary war strategy for the whole world how do we how do we adjust that and of course they came up with a no, number of things they had to prepare new cadres trained in a new way and they had to uh, um, uh, they had to prepare networks around the world. Uh, they wanted to infiltrate organized crime. They had to set up terrorist and sabotage networks everywhere. They wanted these networks to be ready sometime in the 1970s, right? And of course, that's when you start having the terrorism, right? You yeah. you you have this building up of terrorism. You have in the 1960s the communist cells in Jordan joining with the Muslim Brotherhood. You know you have these groups that ultimately overran. Uh, the Shah in 1979 in Iran, you have the revolutionary, you had an attempt at the Grand Mosque by Libyan and East German and Cuban trained Islamists to overthrow the regime in Saudi Arabia by seizing the Grand Mosque. That revolution failed, but the one in Iran succeeded. All of these things, the communists were behind all of these things, behind this terrorism. Uh, I think Claire Sterling showed both how international organized crime and the the terrorist world was connected and she wrote the she wrote the the very interesting book about the assassination of the attempted assassination of the pope back around 1980 pope john paul uh the man who shot him was a was a turk who was from that part of turkey where the turkish uh, organized crime was most influential he ended up going to bulgaria being connected to bulgarian organized crime which was part of the Bulgarian intelligence service, which was under the KGB taking orders from Moscow. And all this terrorism that happened in the, in the time of the assassins in Turkey, where both right-wing and left-wing people were assassinating journalists and politicians. Uh, this was, the, the, there was, the Russians were not only manipulating the left, but even the right. And they were engaging in assassination uh, and, and drug trafficking Joe Douglas's book, Red Cocaine, they conceived in the 50s as part of their strategy is the key to organized crime was some lucrative uh, source of income for organized crime. And they realized that drug trafficking had enormous potential. It was Mao Zedong at the beginning of the 50s that said, we need to wage an opium war against the West. And Khrushchev said, wait a minute, we need to do this on a scientific basis. We need to study this for some years. So they studied organized crime. They studied the corruptibility of banks in South America and North America. Mm-hmm. 
they studied um, how they could, they, they discovered in their studies, in their academies, that it was the laundering of the money that was the key to political power in the West. So of course, real estate becomes important for laundering money. Banks become important for laundering money. Uh, and that laundered money can be used to bribe, to set up front organizations, to control politics, to do all kinds of things. At the same time, you're, you're using drugs to change the culture of the Western people. You're getting them addicted to things. So they start out with marijuana and heroin. They discovered in 1967 by doing tests on American POWs sent to the Soviet Union from Vietnam. Uh, they, you, they tested cocaine on them and said, wait a minute, Americans react very positively to cocaine. So then they started setting up the cocaine networks and they actually had schools. They, the Operation Friendship of Nations was started in 1960. And it was really the Czechs were more, the Czech communists were more advanced than the Russians in um, chemical warfare. And they wanted, they even envisioned designer drugs. And they said, uh, they gave the program, their chemical warfare program, the Czechs, Czechoslovakia, the lead in that. And they set up schools, one school under the KGB and um, the STB, the Czech uh, KGB, and another school under the GRU, military intelligence, and um, disease, the Czech military intelligence. They had these, both of these schools set up in Czech communist Czechoslovakia to train people in the narcotics trafficking business because they wanted to create their own cartels and they didn't require that these people were ideological communists. They just wanted them to be good criminals, good at doing the drug business. And of course they, they favored Latin Americans and Europeans to do this because they had more confidence in the agents they recruited there because at the time Americans were considered iffy. Americans might do like Whitaker Chambers did or Elizabeth Bentley or Louis Boudin's, they might change their mind about what side they were on and, and go before Congress and say, you know, this is what the communists are really doing. So they wanted to have people who had a, they really preferred people who were corrupt people who were sexual perverts were ideal, people who had murdered other people, committed crimes that they could not be part, ever pardoned for. You know, and of course, uh, pedophilia is a crime that became favored by the KGB by the 1970s. Andropov wanted to set up pedophile networks uh, because this is the ultimate hold. Mm -hmm. Person can't betray you then because you've got the ultimate thing on him. Yeah. Um, so, you know, from all my sources over the years, this is the way you can find a lot of this in books. You can find this from testimony of defectors. You can find this by talking to people from these countries, people that have been involved in different things uh, of how they did it. So 1960 was Operation Friendship of Nations, the drug operation, which would open the doors of organized crime. And organized crime is a great source of political corruption to get your hold on politicians. So it's very important to spread corruption because the more corruption you spread, the more control you have. So here you, 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 you look at the crisis of modernity. There's already been a corruption of the old belief. Remember, it was, it was monarchy in the church and the theologians and the, the, the cathedrals. And, and then now you've gone through all this modernity, but the modernity, like the ancients said, there's this element of corruption where things are breaking down. And people are becoming more materialistic and less spiritual and less moral, 
right? As things break down and the communists are naturally, they're piggybacking on it. They're saying God is dead and we can become the new gods and let's go with it. Let's let everything be destroyed. Why not have 50 years of civil war and slaughter yeah. and then it's somehow magically going to turn out good in the end. It's not just going to be a heap of rubble with us living in the stone age. It's going to, we're, we're going to manage it to turn out good. Mm. Pretty. So it, 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 it's, they're following consistently. They're following what they believe. They do believe in this, um, but it's twisted and it's not going in a good place. So, so you've got you've got a defector in 1961 uh, named Anatoly Galitsyn mm -hmm. from the KGB, and Galitsyn came with the story. He had been in a KGB think tank. They were reorganizing the KGB to carry out this long-range disinformation policy to create um, controlled anti-communist groups in the Eastern Bloc. Later, people would tell you Charter 77 in Czechoslovakia. Uh, the, the hijacked solidarity movement, the communists just entered it and took it over. You know, someone from Fighting Solidarity in Poland, a number of them told me solidarity was taken over by the communists, you know, as soon as, you know. So if you hang a shingle up and say, I'm an anti-communist and I'm fighting them, who joins you first, the communist agents? Because yeah. it's all about controlled opposition, right? So you, this is the method by which they governed the Soviet Union, and it was the method by which they were going to set up this phony liberalizer as a leader. Now, Andropov, who's allegedly liked jazz and was a closet liberal, you know, the head of the KGB, right? From mm. 1967 on, he was a closet liberal. He was became the head of the Soviet Union after Brezhnev, and he was the one that was going to introduce the liberalization. And, and we know this from people who were trained in Moscow in the, in the early 80s and the late 70s, who were told these things. I mean, Robert Bukhar, the documentary film producer who worked in the office of the Czech president, he was told this was coming to Czechoslovakia. Uh, you've got uh, Zaslav Bittman, who worked for the head of the KGB chief of disinformation, uh, was also told it and, and talked about it. Um, also, Jan Shana, the defector from Czechoslovakia, also knew about the strategy of uh, a fake collapse of the Warsaw Pact of the Communist Alliance. And he wrote about it in his 1982 book, New, uh, We Will Bury You. But it was Galitzin who had maybe more pieces of the puzzle than some of the others. He knew that uh, he had heard Alexander Shilipin saying they were going to do, in 1959, Shilipin was the head of the KGB then, that they were going to do a fake split with China. In addition to having these phony anti-communist dissident movements, phony right-wing movements. They were, um, they were going to then mislead the West uh, about who was their friend and who was their enemy. And they were going to build on this confusion. And they were going <clears> to <throat> disarm the West mentally when finally this great Soviet liberalizer came along and, and, of course, said, we want capitalism. You know, we want democracy. And <clears throat> they had to set up all the phony liberal leaders and the people that, that were going to help them do this. Now, um, a lot of people mocked Galitzin. They called it the monster plot. They made, made fun of it by calling it the monster plot thesis. And James Angleton, the head of the CIA counterintelligence staff, believed it um, because they had, they had accumulated in the counterintelligence staff at the CIA, they'd accumulated a record of all the... <clears throat> they, they had a record, basically, of, of all the things that the KGB and the Soviet intelligence had done going back to the revolution. 
And they had had a fake collapse of communism before under NEP uh, in the 1920s. They'd already done it. They, they also had a fake opposition movement called the Trust, Operation Trust. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. a group in a bank that yeah. met in a bank and they told the West, we've really taken over the Soviet government. We've infiltrated yeah. the secret police. We control the army. We, Soviet, we've infiltrated the, the Soviet party. Soviet QAnon. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> So they, they, and there was Operation Win after World War II, where they pretended that there was a, a they created a fake uh, anti-communist resistance movement in Poland, which they actually controlled. That was another one of these things. Uh, Edward J. Epstein covers a number of these in his book, uh, Deception. Um, so you have this whole history of this. So it, it isn't even anything new. So Angleton, knowing the his being steeped in the history of it, he goes, well, this is how they operate. This is just a, on a more gigantic scale, they're going to take two decades. And and, and of course, they were, I think they were aiming at 1984 or five to start this, but Andropov died of kidney failure, uh, of course, in 1983. And so you had Chernenko come in. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. While they were training Gorbachev to take over the role that Andropov was going to play, and they had picked him because he was personable and he... They thought that the West would, would, would buy into him. And then, of course, you had um, uh, Georgi uh, Arbatov, the head of the Institute of USA and Canada Studies, coming over to the West and saying, we've got a secret weapon. We're going to take away the image of your enemy. Yeah. And he actually came to my school at UC Irvine and said this in uh, December oh, sure. 1988, a year before, you know, a little less than a year before the Berlin Wall came down. And, and of course, Galitzin wrote a book in 84 predicting uh, you know, uh, you know, all these things that were going to happen, you know, 140, 140 something predictions of which uh, by night, by the 1994, uh, 93 point something percent of these, almost 94% of these predictions came, had come true. Predictions like the Communist Party would give up power in the Soviet Union, only it would be fraudulent. They would still maintain control behind the scenes. They would release people from the gulag. They would, you know, they would introduce a separation of powers in their government. They would, you know, he had all these details that actually, if you followed it step by, it's, oh my gosh, everything he's saying is coming true. But they had, right at, when that was happening, there was this big media campaign, which was led by some prominent conservatives, by the way, like William F. Buckley. There was this giant media campaign to discredit Gallitzin to say he never made any true predictions. You had Tom Mangold's book, Cold Warrior, which is a giant smear on Gallitzin and Angleton, you know, and the former CIA counterintelligence staff who had been saying, this is what's coming. Because they couldn't have these guys be prophets who told, you know, who actually predicted what was going to happen. Now, a caveat, a warning, just because they had this plan and that it was ingenious and that we obviously, we fell for it doesn't mean that it worked the way they wanted it to. Sure. Right? 
It's like, like von Moltke. It's like the elder von Moltke the said, no plan. plan survives contact with the energy. The plan, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they don't. Everything, you know, you've got human beings. It's like herding cats, right? Yeah. 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 You it's... can be the biggest dictator in the world and your biggest frustration is how many people do we kill, you know, and where do we put the bodies because they're not following the plan? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this was, this was Stalin's world. This was Lenin's world and so on. And Mao's world. So, so, uh, so then, what what really came of this? Um, and and I had a chance to talk to a, a disgruntled KGB officer who was inside on the inside of this, who explained to me what went wrong, what went right, and what went wrong. And he actually had a conversation with the head of the KGB about whether this everything had fallen apart. And he said the head of the KGB told this guy, "Yeah, uh, we've had setbacks." But we can still, the deception's good, they're buying it. And in fact, the fact that they had real setbacks made it look more real. Because mm. people would look and go, you know, Galitzin can't be right, that can't be a strategy because look at the spontaneous way the Berlin Wall went down. Mm. See, they were planning to take it down in a more orderly way a day or two after when it actually came down. So, so you had these glitches that really added to the realism. But I'll just go through some of the revolutions, what we know. Romania, the death of Ceausescu. You've got Andrei Kondrescu's book, The Hole in the Flag, where he documents how it was really Russian agents within the Romanian, uh, among the Romanian generals, KGB agents, who led the revolution against Ceausescu on the orders of Moscow. So Ceausescu wasn't overthrown by a spontaneous revolution. And Kodrescu emphasizes this. A lot of the events in the Romanian Revolution, the mass events, were faked. What really happened uh, it was it was a coup that Moscow overthrew him because he didn't want to go along with the liberalization. He wanted to remain in his place. It's like, no, you're stepping down because we're having a revolution, and he wouldn't do it. So they just overthrew him. Um, in in Czechia. <clears throat> In Czechoslovakia, I should say rather, because it's since divided into Slovakia and, and, and Czechia. In Czechoslovakia, we've got Robert Bukar made a film about it. He had STB officers testifying on film, on video, saying <clears throat> the order came down from Moscow to do the Velvet Revolution and explaining how they, they created the Velvet Revolution. These are officers of the Czech KGB, the STB. Uh, talking about Vaclav Havel, how he was prepared, how he was Moscow's choice. Havel to the castle, you know, was all part of this game somehow. And of course, um, uh, Robert Bukhar's uh, wrote, you know, his book version of the, all the interviews he did for this is called And Reality Be Damned. Uh, I forget the name of the, I think the, the, the documentary maybe had the same title. Um, um, but the, um, the um, and in Poland, you know, with uh, you know that um, Lack Valenza has been outed as an agent of the secret police in court in in by an agent of the UB of the of the um, Polish Communist Secret Police, and of course you've got you had revelations, you know, uh, in Poland under the Kaczynski brothers. I think it was two thousand seven or eight, where they found that. The, all the Polish political parties had been infiltrated by the Russians through uh, the defense ministry, which was just a nest of GRU agents that were there to 
actually operate against the Polish political system in the, I'm sorry, in Polish military intelligence to operate against the Polish system. And of course, the, the Law and Justice Party was able to fight back against this and to oppose Moscow. And um, they had uh, one of the Polish politicians um, who uh, ended up becoming briefly head of military intelligence had actually had Galitzin's book translated into Polish and published and saying, we need to study this book if we want to fight our enemy in Moscow, right? So there's this struggle that's gone on. And of course, you have the Ukraine revolution against Moscow. You had the Rose Revolution in Georgia. So Moscow, they had all these problems because the Achilles heel of the communist system was always the Ukrainians who were always wanting to get free of communism. And of course, some of the people in the Caucasus. And so holding the empire together and holding the ideology together, well, once they pretended to give up communism, the problem was they find out how, how much everyone hated it and how most of the members of the Communist Party itself didn't even believe in it. We'll so how could up. they bring it back? Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So the fake revolution became partly real. Only the KGB and the, the secret party structures, the Communist Party underground, the true believers, and the KGB, they were left in control of the economy. They couldn't fly the red flag. They had taken it down already. They couldn't bring the country back to full-on Bolshevism. Of course, this was a big lesson for the Chinese. As the Chinese watched this, there was some speculation they might have been trying to do that. But then Tiananmen Square happened, and they did the opposite of what they did in Russia. Tiananmen Square, they brought in the tanks, and they smashed it. Mm. They said, you know what? The Russians are making a mistake. This is not going to work. Liberalization is not going to work. So you're going to have a small group of people leading the country, but you can't come out and say that you're communist. You have to pretend to be a nationalist. You have to pretend to be a Christian. You have to you have to manipulate everybody. Where you're progressively losing control because what you need is at the end of the day you need Stalin, lighting people against the wall and killing them or crushing them under tanks because it's the only way it really works. Stalin had the magic formula. He was just a bloody maniac. He was a psychopath. And if you're not going to be the full-blown psychopath, you're going to start, it's going to start to break down for you. So this is the thing is that they thought, well, Putin's going to come in. He's going to bring the system back quietly without alarming the West. He's going to, they're going to think he's their buddy. He's going to have George Bush as his friend. And he's going to show the little cross he run, wears under his neck to George Bush to show I'm a Christian too, you know. And so that Bush sees into his soul and sees he's a good person you know, back then, but Bush was, the scales fell from Bush's eyes by the end of his presidency. And, and George W. Bush writes about it in his memoirs is I was wrong about Putin. He fooled me, you know, very honestly, George W. Bush says that. But of course, George W. Bush never did read Galitzin. None of them did. They all accepted the, that it was false, that it, it never happened this way. So now, where, where are we now? We're at this, this point where Russia is trying to put together back the Soviet Union, but things have so degenerated into people profiting and the corruption even of the KGB caretakers of the economy and the oligarchs that are under their thumb, who they murder relentlessly as soon as they step out of line or put in jail like Kordakovsky or they, they murder, murdered Boris Berezovsky and so on, or they exile them to Israel or wherever. They they, they, they couldn't make the military industrial system function. 
they, instead of making 2000 Armada tanks, they made a hundred, right? Instead of May, so we still don't know about the missiles. There's an allegation that in China now, their ICBMs are full of water instead of rocket fuel, right? Don't know if that's true. That could be a deception. You just don't know. But, these, but of course, China's economy is unraveling. Russia's having these severe problems. They can't even defeat Ukraine, which is a third of their size. Yeah. We're at nearing the end of the second year of the war. Yeah. So this is, this is where we are. But the real problem is in the West, we still don't have clarity about this strategy, the crisis of modernity, how bad things have become, how we've been penetrated by agents, by these foreign governments, and we've got our own screwed up ideas, and 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 things are very dangerous. You know, these countries could trigger World War III. We got super corrupt leaders, as everybody can see. We got organized crime going, drug trafficking. They they won't enforce the border, which are all things, by the way, that the Beijing and Moscow wants to happen mm -hmm. here. And Beijing and Moscow are openly allied. Yeah. Military exercises, joint ones at, off of Alaska, both threatening Japan. China and North Korea are helping Russia with military supplies in this war. So you see how, how it's evolved. And, it, and I'm, I've just been trying to follow how this whole thing has gotten to where it is now. So that's kind of it. Uh, and as always, you've done a brilliant job. It just... I always, yeah. it's always a good ego check to have you on because I like to think I'm, I'm well read and that I have a good idea of a lot of different topics and I tie them together and then I have you on and we we jump between like the Berlin Wall and Aristotle and Martin Luther and I'm like fuck, <laughs> like, well, it's just it, I mean it's just yeah, it's, mean, a, it's a it's a it's the best compliment I can give you is that it it puts my ego yeah. my well my, I you know I I don't. I got curious about it, so I wanted to know as much as I could to try sure. to understand it in a in as a whole. Sure. And of course, I'm I'm not the ex. I'm sort of a jack of all trades. I I try to learn as much. I try to figure out what is the context, the the proper context for understanding everything, hmm. and and sort of putting it together in a in a way that's practical that we can actually view it and see where we are and see what the danger is. So if we if we have a kind of broad knowledge of how the world works now and what's wrong with it we kind of know what's going to happen or what has to happen to fix it and of course it's not like you can it's not like the world is something you could fix right if things just sort of happen and, and we all play our small role um and of course there is there are uh forces of good and evil in the world and forces of uh, growth and decay that are all these things are interacting. We're re we've reached a point at which there's a number of crises, you know, the food crisis, um, the economic crisis, the banking crisis, the, the morality crisis where people fake things and lie. And then we have the conspiracy theory stuff where instead of trying to understand the, the modernity in the context of larger history and what's happened and trying to get that that big view, we say it's the banksters, it's the Illuminati. And it's like, well, that's so vague. What banksters? Where's the evidence? You know, and it's always this stuff that when you look at it, it kind of is like a cheap tissue that's wet. It just mm -hmm. falls into pieces when you actually examine it. Or it's the Jews, mm -hmm. you know, like the crazy washerwoman in the meaning of life. 
who turns to the camera after the guy exploded himself in his guts and, and shouts that into the camera. Um, they've got, you know, once you, you know, and you see it when one, when a person believes one conspiracy theory, they tend to start to believe all of them. And they're, they're basically very simplistic, uh, even childish ways of, of reconfiguring the world. So you got the 9-11 truthers, you know, a missile hit the Pentagon. Look, I know people who were in there that saw the body parts and the seats and the parts of the plane, you know, that were in the building when it was hit. Um, you know, just ask John Guandolo, who was there. Um, you know, um, the, the thing is, is that, that the conspiracy theorizing is that with people who have, have not understood this history since the Bolshevik revolution of the power of the communist movement, which is largely consists of groups who are manipulated by the communists are not going to understand, you know, what Antifa is, mm -hmm. who's directing black lives matter, why Biden is, you know, according to Newsweek is destroying what 139 ATACMs instead of sending them to Ukraine. Right. Because Biden pretends to help Ukraine, you know, all these people who are against Ukraine because Biden is helping them. It's like, you say Biden's a liar, so why do you believe him when he says he wants to help Ukraine? The thing is, is he's been, where? when did they get the, the Abrams tanks? I don't think they got them. Yeah. Right? So, and they got, you know, most of the, the leopards they got from Germany don't work. And it's like the Ukrainians have been struggling mightily uh, and doing a fantastic job. And they're really, now they're just being cut off. And the president of Finland the other day in his farewell address said, you know, Europe better wake up. You better, of course, it's the race to the bottom because Russia's all screwed up. Europe's all screwed up. The U.S. is all screwed up. China's all screwed up. I mean, we're all more screwed up. I mean, we might be so screwed up we can't have World War III because when we all push the button, it doesn't work. <laughs> that might be the best case. Yeah, I mean, that's where we're all headed for because the lights are going to go out pretty soon because they can't make anything work everyone's, because everybody's, everyone's so too drunk to anymore. fight. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah, you have two buddies that are so shit faced and they can't stand up. And they're, <laughs> they're both, they're, I'm going to, and you're like, dude, I don't think they're, I don't think they can fight. There's nothing to break up. Just let them yell at each other. I've seen it working at bars. I'm like, nah, they can't. Don't worry. They, they can't fight. They don't know. They can't they, lift their fists. They are not capable of fighting. We'll watch it and then we'll take them home. Yeah. yeah, that might be best case scenario is we're too we're too fucked up to have World War Three. <laughs> that might be that that's a take I haven't I've never thought of. Well, that, well, think about it this way: Russia was the largest nuclear power with thought to be modern missiles, yeah. modern everything, all these tactical nukes in this modern army. Well, look at what their modern army turned out to be. Correct. Correct. It's, it it's, didn't work the way anyone they're thought. They're going to take they, all of Europe, and it's like, but they still haven't taken their their logistical tail can't get them to Kiev. It's and so I, how and are and they going to get to Berlin, right? Yeah, and I'm guilty. And yeah, and we got we got to wrap up in a second because I got to yeah. jump on a phone call. But I was going to say no, and I, I'm guilty of it with China. It's a, a hundred year marathon. They're they're subverting all. They're capable of all of this, and then you see like they're demolishing nineteen skyscrapers at the same time because the insurance company went out, and you're like wait, what the fuck? And Tofu cities. Yes, tofu cities. But you start to realize like we, everyone is fronting this more competent face than we mm -hmm. really have. And in an odd way, 
it's almost kind of comforting. Mm-hmm. We're all we're all too messed up. And you're like, oh. just just watch the presidential debates of the last decade, both parties. These people are pathetic. These people running for president are pathetic. I'm sorry. I sit there and I go, do they know anything? Yeah. They're just repeating these lines that were fed to them. Are these, they just like, all a bunch yeah. of actors? You know, it's I don't, you know, kinda, there's, you know, Nikki Haley, I think she does know, understand some diplomacy, but, you know, it's like the, the ones that have some knowledge, they have some knowledge, they're right about some things, but it's like overall, they just are lost. They have no context for anything. The most wise people are staying far away from the office. Yeah, that's my instinct. Yeah. It's like you don't want to get in this mess. Yeah. Well, hey, Jeff, let's, Mr. Nyquist, excuse me. Let's wrap this one up. That's okay. I'm I'm Jeff. I always love talking to you. I always (laughs) love talking to you, dude. And, uh, we'll do it again. I think, I think you, you, Claire, and I should do an episode. I think that could be fun. Um, and I'll text you. Uh, there's a book on the yugas I think you should read by Joseph Selby. I've had him on here before. It's very, very good. He goes into on the theme. Uyghurs. You mean? The... No, no, on on the yugas, the Kali Yuga. Oh, the, the different, Kali Yugas. The, the, yes, it, yes. Oh, it's yeah, actually I'd love very, to read about very that. good. Yeah. It, it's it's going into different technologies, and yeah, it's like how the wisdom. It's like we're like we're spiritually void, yeah. but we have great iPhones and it's I've I've got the text here I you know you could you could actually read it on the air you could read the text section by section and go that sounds like us yeah oh yeah no it's rather interesting yeah it's it's a really it's a really good book on it um I'll text that to you right now actually but uh for now guys please go into the description please go follow Jeff on uh, Twitter I'm not there so he's uh you're gonna have to go follow him and keep fighting the good fight as I have been deemed an undesirable from yet another big tech platform so with that, Mr. Nyquist, thank you for your time, sir. Always love talking to you, man. You're a cool fucking dude. I wouldn't keep having you on here if I didn't love you. Okay, so, Tommy. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, sir. Till next time. Hope all is well. Keep me updated. And uh, I will see you. Where the hell is the mask? There it is. All right. Thank you so much, man. <laughs> Take Recording care, brother. Stopped. Guys, thank you for watching. Peace.